I think the easiest place to start is right from the beginning, which is what do you do when you want to start a business? If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you want to use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old-school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Sprinkler Nerd Show. I'm your host, Andy Humphrey. This is episode 39. And today we are talking with my good friend, John Giacomo, one of the co-founders of Revision Legal. And in full transparency, this is actually our second take. We got about 10 minutes in and I forgot to hit the record button. So just to, just so you know, not everyone's perfect and we get, we're doing this a second time. <laughs> uh like I said, John is one of the co-founders of Revision Legal, and I wanted to bring John on because if you're starting a business, if you own a business, or you are in a management position at a you know distributor, manufacturer, wholesaler, it's nice to have a little bit of law uh, in your background and understand a little bit about the law. And I've been working with John for about 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. He's helped me with uh, multiple trademarks. He's helped me review contracts and he's uh, just become a good uh, asset in my business and one of my go-to resources. And one of the other things that John helped me um, sort of uh, discover was that not all attorneys are assholes. There are nice attorneys out there and uh, sort of break down some of those barriers of being super formal. And uh, anyway, without further ado, wanted to bring John on the show. So John, welcome to the Sprinkler Nerd Show. Thank you very much, Andy. And I appreciate you having me on. And I think you missed the best part, which is that when I started our firm in 2012, it was in your warehouse. So I sat in apparently the office that you're in now, which looks sub substantially better than it did when I was there because I never did anything with it. I had white walls and no money. Yeah, and I am sitting in your old chair, like literally, probably <laughs> almost within a foot, probably, of where your first desk was is where I'm sitting right now. I don't know if you remember, but I spent a substantial amount of money on a steel case um, standing desk because I had I had made a little bit of money in the first few months, and that was my treat to myself. But that was the only thing that was in there. I remember because I remember when the truck came. I don't think you were here. We unloaded it, and that sucker was heavy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And for the context for, for the audience, um, you know, having a law firm inside of a warehouse that's delivering sprinkler heads and other supplies is is an interesting thing. But it was actually extremely valuable for me because I got to see how e-commerce works and how all these parts fit together. So I am very appreciative of that, of that and also appreciative of uh, the low rent that was charged at the <laughs> <Yeah>. time. <laughs> Awesome. Well, what I want to do is uh, allow you the opportunity to maybe speak a little bit about how you got into law, uh, the type of law that you are involved with and sort of, you know, how you do what you do. Sure. So I, um, I have a background in IT originally. Uh, my degree is in philosophy, um, but I was always into computers and computer science. And um, when I went to law school, I started off wanting to do criminal law. And I soon realized that it wasn't for me and you know frankly criminal lawyers don't make that much money and it, it does, they don't do the types of things that you want them to do it's more kind of the daily grind in in court with the uis and etc 
So I, I started to look and kind of become introspective into, you know, what am I good at? And I really realized that I liked intellectual property and I liked helping business owners build something of value because it, it provides me with my, my own kind of sense of purpose. So I, I went down that path. Um, I started working for a firm and that's how you and I got connected because you were a client of that firm at that time. And in 2012, I went off and started my own firm and it's been successful uh, ever since. You know, we've had failures and ups and downs, but for the most part, it's been great. And uh, I'm also an adjunct professor of law at Michigan State University College of Law, where I teach both trademark law and internet law, both in East Lansing, Michigan, uh, through their regular program and then overseas um, in their summer abroad program. Awesome. Well, there's definitely a lot to discuss uh, legally. I think that a lot of what you do um, may not be super relevant to an irrigation landscape contractor because it is the specialty of internet law, trademarks, patents, things like that. And there's two areas that I want to dig into. But first, maybe you could talk to us about um, things you may consider doing legally when you start your business. Yeah. And I think I think maybe it's not correct to say that most of the stuff that we do is uh, not relevant to a landscaper, for example, because you said it best years ago when you said to me, all commerce is e-commerce. And it really is. Whether you're actually selling products online or you're just putting up a, a web page, these are all kind of things that you should think about. And th I think the easiest place to start is right from the beginning, which is what do you do when you want to start a business? And the first thing I always tell people is figure out what the name is and then have an attorney run a clearance search, a trademark clearance search. And the purpose, there's really two purposes of, uh, for that. One is that you can make sure that you are clear to use that name without running into someone else's name or brand. And then two, you can defend yourself against any claims that come along in the future if somebody says you don't own that name or you don't have the right to use that name. And where that would occur for people in your audience is that if you're operating a landscaping business in Michigan, for example, and another is in Ohio, then eventually somebody's going to expand and there's going to be some crossover and you're going to get into a fight. And if you don't kind of figure out that stuff at the outset, then that fight is very costly because it's what we call fact, uh, a fact dependent fight. And that just means in lawyer talk that it's going to cost you a lot of money because we've got to figure out what the facts are and we have to figure out who used the name first. And so getting that clearance search at the outset and taking that first step is great for you because it's going to protect you against those claims and it's going to protect you against a number of other claims like related to your domain name and related to the way you advertise. And it really is the cheapest and easiest first step that you can take to protect your business. Got it. So just to try to make this um, tangible and restate what I think I heard you say as the example, if there were two contractors, one's in Michigan and one is in Ohio, and they both have the name, let's just make this up, Advanced Irrigation. And there's a project in Detroit that the company from Ohio comes up to do because maybe they're in Northern Ohio, close enough to Detroit that it makes sense for them to come up and do this project. They have the name Advanced Irrigation. However, at the same time, there is already another company in Michigan called Advanced Irrigation, there, be, there could be some confusion and that could open uh, the possibility for some type of, of lawsuit down the road between those two companies. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the key question in that lawsuit is who used the name first? And 
in order to figure that out, you have to look at advertising and where did you advertise and how much did you spend on advertising? And like I said, all of those are very fact dependent items and they're also very expensive items to litigate. So the way to avoid all of that cost and expense is to make sure that you're clear to use your name right at the outset. Got it. So the first thing, and you've taught me some of this. So when I want to, um, let's say create another product that I'm going to sell on Amazon, et cetera. I usually do my own just quick search on the USPTO to see if there's anything else out there already existing. So let's say that that contractor from Ohio was new, you know, they, their business was a year old. They came up to do this project and this other existing advanced irrigation, you know, caught wind of it. People were calling them because they thought there was, they were the other company, or maybe there was something that went south on this project and they, they, everybody thought that it was the other advanced irrigation. What kind of damages can there be from this type of, um, you know, name mix up? Well, if, if the advanced irrigation that has uh, priority, we call it priority, meaning the first person used it and they have a registered trademark, the damages are potentially up to $2 million in, in what we call statutory damages plus costs and attorney's fees for trademark infringement. So there's a huge incentive to make sure that none of this stuff happens because you don't want to get hit with that giant stick when you're just starting your business, or even if you're a year in when it's even worse because you can't change the name because you have to do a lot of things to do so. Uh, what you're talking about when there are two people using in different territories is what we call common law rights. And common law rights extend to the territory in which you've used the name. So the big question is going to be, you know, advanced irrigation might have rights in Ohio and the other advanced irrigation might have rights in Michigan. But as soon as they start to walk into the other's territory, all of a sudden those rights conflict. The way to resolve that conflict is to file for federal trademark registration. Because when you file for federal trademark, excuse me, federal trademark registration, you have nationwide priority to use that trademark over everyone else. So you get the rights and you get a, a nice shiny certificate, as you know, right from the USPTO that says you own this throughout the in, entire United States. And so you can avoid all of those conflicts. Okay. And um, what type of costs are associated with obtaining that trademark? You're typically talking about twelve to $1,600, depending on the complexity. Um, so it's, it's a relatively low cost in the grand scheme of legal things. And the value is extremely high. Okay. And then either way, it would probably be worth um, hiring someone to do the investigation just so that you know, even if you're not ready to go forward and file it, to know that uh, choosing the name advanced irrigation, at least no one else is using it. So let's just wait till we can afford to file, but we paid someone to do the research for us. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a valuable thing to do. Even if you're not in a financial position to file for trademark registration, you can get a clearance search for $350. And there are even services now that do a relatively good job through artificial intelligence performing that clearance search. One is, um, um, I think, Markify. I think they have a product that does that. Okay. And you can go to a website like that and run a search and see you know, what the results are and, and make a decision as to whether you want to take it further from there. And how about, uh, let's say that there is a company, they only ever plan on operating in this one city. Let's just say it's in Traverse city, Michigan, right here. And they have no plans to go elsewhere, uh, nationally or out of state. Do they still need to go through this process? I think the answer is yes, because the risk is that somebody else expands and if somebody else already has a federally registered trademark, and even if you're operating in a minor city, 
um, you can still be subject to a trademark claim. The great example locally is Hofbrau. Hofbrau, uh, for your listeners, is a kind of German-style, family-friendly pub located in Interlochen, Michigan, which is um, a it's the home of the best arts academy for kids in the country. And Hofbrau has been there forever, but Hofbrau House in Munich has been there for much, much longer and has sold beer into the United States for much longer. So Hofbrau got a demand letter a couple of years ago saying, hey, you need to change your name. And unfortunately, even though they were located here and serving a, a directly local audience, they had to go through the pain of, of undertaking that process. Because they were now priority two, because the federally registered trademark took the priority one. Yeah, that's exactly right. And even if they had tried to have the obtain that trademark, you know, what you said about who's first to use it, they were not because the German Hofbrau was clearly first to use yeah, it. Yeah, that's correct. Interesting. So for $350 clearance search, you can make sure that you're not going to put your business in a position to be challenged later. And then if the business, if you have the funds or the business starts to do well, you can invest in that federally registered trademark, and then you can take your business wherever you want to. That's right. You have the protection. Awesome. So that covers, I definitely want to talk about names. Uh, one of the other things I think uh, is important as it relates to um, contractors and uh, intellectual property are photos on websites. And so if you're listening to this and you have a website, uh, number one, you probably realize how hard it is to get professional um, irrigation photos, unless you've taken them yourself. And I can speak from my own experience that my company was personally sued for having pictures on our website that were not our pictures. It was accidental. However, we were sued and had to settle out for having pictures on our website that weren't ours. So let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So I think the key thing that I want to communicate to your audience is that you have to vet where your website pictures are coming from. And the easiest way to do that is to make sure that um, you know where they're coming from when you hire a web developer or you obtain in writing some kind of clause that says that the web developer is representing and warranting that those photos are owned or licensed correctly. That's the easiest way to solve that problem. And this problem is, there's really two types of these problems now. There's the, the somebody put my photos on their website, uh, which typically happens when, when a unsophisticated user, let's say a landscaping company, hires a contractor, they pull images off of Google image search, they upload them to the website, and somebody comes out of the woodwork and says, I own that image, and then sues the contractor. That's one. And the newer form of that has to do with the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, ADA uh, compliance for websites. It's an interesting issue, but now uh, people are saying that the ADA applies to websites and that it must be ADA friendly. And so now we're seeing very similarly people coming out of the woodwork and finding plaintiffs with disabilities and filing suit over websites that are not ADA compliant. So if you're talking to your website developer and you want to avoid the two major scenarios that result in litigation for somebody advertising on the web today, those are really the two. You need to have that conversation and say, I want to make sure my pictures are clear and I want to make sure that my website is currently ADA compliant. Mm -hmm. Right. So do not go to Google, run an image search 
download or copy that image and place it on your website. Yeah, that's the easiest way to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, how about using pictures from manufacturers? You'll have to look at your agreement with your manufacturer. Uh, in some cases, using pictures from a manufacturer to sell their products will be allowed. But the easiest way to deal with it is to just simply ask, can I use your photos, your product shots for selling your products on my website? And a lot of times marketing departments at manufacturers will have a kit, a press kit, where they'll send you a zip file and they'll have a number of images in there and they'll explain the way in which you can use those images. And they'll also tell you how you can refer to them on your website while you're selling their products. Mm -hmm. And it's worth reaching out to them to have that conversation with them and ask for that information. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you're listening, you think, you know, I'm a small landscape contractor. I'm in Nebraska. I don't really think I have any legal risk. I can tell you that it oftentimes isn't the, what's the right way to say this, uh, John, it's not necessarily the person that owns the website going out and finding it. They'll either hire other attorneys or bots to, to scan for their intellectual property out there and chase you down. And in, in my case, it basically was a $10,000 settlement because to actually go prove and fight and get the legal backing was going to cost more than that. And so, you know, this other company sending me, uh, delivering me papers basically earned them a $10,000. Yeah. Attorneys, there are a, a large slew of attorneys that are simply trolls. And when I say troll, it means somebody who is fishing for a problem that doesn't exist and they create the problem for the purposes of extracting money from you. And it, the case of copyright trolls and ADA trolls is the perfect example because what they're looking for is to settle uh, somewhere between the cost that it would cost to defend against the claim and zero. And if they get any money within that, that realm, that spectrum, then they consider it successful. They're not going to sue, for example, um, uh, Rainbird or Toro. They're going to go after the mid-tier or the low-tier person because they know that Rainbird or Toro will mount a defense. They will actually take the risk and hire attorneys and pay their attorneys to mount that defense. But for the average person who's running a small business, it's too costly to defend against that claim. So they're looking for that quick money grab because they know they won't want to do it. Right. What is the highest amount that that small business is willing to pay and pay quickly without much fight? And in our case, it was $10,000. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we see it all the time. That, that is a common way for attorneys to create work for themselves. Okay. So let's move on to, so that's intellectual property as it relates to trademarks, names, uh, photographs. What are some things that contractors should keep their eye out for as it relates to just mitigating their risk of any legal risk in running and operating their business? I think the, the key areas and going back to what we initially were talking about, which is what do you do when you start a business? I think making sure all the check boxes uh, are checked is really the, the key. And that is Make sure you have a business entity that's formed and is current. So if, if it's a LLC, make sure it's current with your state or a corporation, make sure it's current. Uh, adopt formation documents. So if you are a LLC, for example, you need to have an operating agreement that's been reviewed and that outlines the way in which you're going to work with your business partners if you have any. And the same is true for corporations with shareholder agreements and bylaws. Those uh, agreements change over time. So for example, when I 
signed up uh, with my business partner and we executed an operating agreement, we didn't have kids and we didn't think about what happens when we die or what happens when, um, you know, one of us gets sick or gets cancer or those types of things. Or what if one of us wants out or gets a divorce? Those are the types of things that you should be thinking about to avoid risk, really true business risk, because they're easily preventable and they're very low cost. Mm-hmm. And then from there, the other is just make sure you separate your assets. Make sure that there is a very clear line between your business bank account and your personal bank account. And make sure you're following the best practices that your bookkeeper or your accountant tells you to follow to make sure that those assets are separate. And the reason for this is because if you ever um, get sued, for example, personal injury because somebody trips on a sprinkler head or, uh, you know, potentially you know, a head blows off and, and breaks a house or something. The mainline pipe uh, breaks and floods the basement. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you get sued and ultimately you are found responsible and your insurance carrier does not cover the claim. You do not want that liability extending to you individually. So what you have to do is make sure that those assets are separate. You can open up a new business the next day and you can probably have the same client list. But what you can't do is you can't work backwards if you haven't taken the steps to protect against personal liability. Hmm. Yeah, good stuff. I think um, there's definitely a mix of that in the landscape industry. There's a lot of the landscape industry that is uh, DIY weekend warriors, you know, people that maybe do landscaping and irrigation, maybe even sprinkler service work on the side, you know, that maybe do this for their neighbors or, um, you know, maybe even, you know, run a hundred thousand dollar business on the side, just fixing, you know, sprinklers. Maybe they're a teacher and in the summertime they do this kind of work and they don't, they don't register a business. They don't register a name. They just call it, you know, John sprinkler repair DBA. All the money goes right into their personal bank account. You are hitting all of the right buttons right here. So I owned <laughs> a, a, uh, a lawn care business when I was in high school and when I, left to go to college, I sold that lawn care business to my dad, who is a teacher. And (laughs) he never once ever filed for a business entity. He never hired an accountant. He was using uh, H&R Block as his accountant. And eventually I had to sit him down and say, look, this is when I was in law school. I had to say, I know this is a hobby for you, but this is a hobby that's making six figures now. You really need to take care of this stuff and take it seriously. Right. And finally, after I had, I had graduated, he, he uh, actually listened to me. But it, it is all over the place in that industry. Absolutely. Um, and I know a lot of suppliers also want to have someone personal guarantee, you know, for just what you said. I mean, maybe someone has uh, $50,000 of credit at XYZ supplier. And should they shut that business down and potentially walk away, the supplier says, nah, you, if your business closes, we, we need to make sure we're getting paid. It requires that personal guarantee. Yeah. Particularly with, um, hardware stores and, and other suppliers of that sort. Yeah. You need to be very careful that, um, you're separating those assets so that if ultimately you go out of business or you get stiffed by a client and you, you can't pay your bills that, um, there's a layer of separation between your personal assets and your business assets. Definitely. Good. Well, we've gone from uh, starting the business names, photographs, um, keeping your personal assets separate from your business assets. Um, I would like to ask you, I know you kind of redid your house and you've gone through various contractors and I think it's always nice for listeners to hear um, 
from homeowners like you and like me. I built a house two years ago. I had a great experience. You know, what, what are some of the things that you found contractors did well um, with their trade? And what are some things that contractors could improve on that you, who you worked with? I think it's difficult to say what they did well, because when they do well, uh, it, it just works and you're happy with it, right? So you don't really remember those instances. But uh, we had a recent experience, actually last week, where a uh, company refinished our floors and they did a great job. Now, where things have failed for us is with communication. And it's always it always seems to be a communication issue. And the, the key areas are uh, budget, so not communicating uh, and having contractors go over budget expectations where contractors do not um, explain the level of quality that is an option and uh, ultimately not asking questions or having that le that level of communication with the homeowner and i'll give you a few examples the floors that we had redone i came home after taking a week off to go skiing and came back and they looked beautiful. They did an incredible job, but they had not pulled the stove away and done the floors underneath the stove. Whoops. And yeah. And, and so my first question was, well, why didn't you call? Like if you would have called, we could have had a conversation. I could have sent a, a guy over to cap the gas and you could have pulled the stove out and did the stuff underneath the stove. And another example is we had a flood in our basement and we had it redone and the contractors kind of, did shoddy work. And I came in and I said, guys, like, this doesn't look good. Why did you do it this way? And the answer was, well, we were trying to save you money. And saving money was never my expectation. It was that I wanted it done to a certain level of finish. And the lack of communication on that probably cost them more money than it otherwise would have, because I would have paid more. I would have Absolutely. said, just do it. Man, that's such a right. common... Uh, scenario because oftentimes, you know, we or the contractor does things according to what they think the price is worth, right? Not what the actual client is willing to spend, right? So when they, they thought they were saving you money because that's what they might want based on their own budgets and what they think um, the value is versus what you really want just by asking you. Yeah. And, and a lot of times I want to walk into a project because, you know, with an attorney, um, this is going to sound arrogant, but it's not intended to be, but it's just a statement of reality. Time is more valuable than money. So walking into a project, I want the best possible outcome, regardless of the cost, because I don't want to have to focus my time on having to have conversations about whether or not this is up to the standard of quality that we're looking for. So I think like going into those types of scenarios, just having clear lines of communication and knowing what the level of finish is and knowing how they can get a hold of you and ask questions if they're concerned about the way that things are going to work out and, and knowing when to say, you know, we could do this on the cheap or we could do this the expensive way is really key to, to being a successful contractor. Yeah, absolutely. That communication, the more information that you can provide and acquire from the client, you know, the better. I don't think... If you went to, if a sprinkler contractor showed up your house and said, Hey, John, do you want a sprinkler system? Here's the price. And you said, okay, let's do it. And you didn't talk about anything else. How many sprinklers, where are they going? What do you want covered? Do you have any concerns? And they just put it in. You would not be on the same page. It would, they would have to be lucky, you know, to be on the same page versus walking through the entire system end to end and, you know, 
giving you that information and asking you what you want. And that's really what results in litigation is that the, there is a, a disconnect between expectation and um, performance. And there's also combined a lack of communication because most problems can be solved as long as there's adequate communication. And when that line of communication breaks down is when people start suing each other. And as a contractor, that's the last thing that you want to do because it ruins your reputation. And it also is just a huge time sink and a waste of money. I've been in litigation over um, contracts, uh, you know, house contractors. And, you know, you think lawyers want to litigate cases? (laughs) No. (laughs) If you want the easiest, quickest way to a divorce, get into litigation with anyone. (laughs) So avoiding that by having clear communication is, is the most simple way to make your life and potentially your wife happy. (laughs) Right. Nice. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Well, um, I think that is a pretty good 10,000 foot view without getting, you know, really into the legal issues. I think I may have one last question. Are there, do you have any recommendations for someone that maybe doesn't have an attorney on, on their, on their team in terms of a, of a go-to resource. And, and I'm not saying they need to come to you, of course, but do you have any recommendations for how they can find an attorney that can work well with them? Yeah. I think find people around you and talk to them. I think, um, you know, historically I would say something like, well, look at Google reviews, but Google reviews can be gamed and, you know, attorneys game Google reviews very successfully. And, uh, things like, badges like best lawyer in America or, you know, super lawyers, those are kind of pay for play systems as well. The the key measure is do other people have successful experiences with this person and just ask them. And I think, um, it never, I think people always want to talk about their service providers because if they find somebody really good, they really want to want to chat them up. I'll give you a great example. I, uh, have a client who's very wealthy and I needed to figure out how to do some fancy tax stuff with a private jet of all things. And I picked up the phone and I just called somebody else with a private jet. And I was like, what do you think about this? And he's like, here's five guys to talk to. They'll solve the problem for you. I was afraid to do that for over a year because I thought this guy's not even going to want to talk to me or give me the time of day, but it just took a simple phone call. Do those things. Just, just pick up the phone, call people that you admire, call people that you know have worked with attorneys in the past and see if you can figure out what good experiences that they have had. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I know for me, what I appreciate about what you do is, is everything's digital. I, I'm not going to expect to get a, you know, typed up, written uh, invoice for service time. Um, everything is done digitally and just as a business owner, like what you said before about saving time, that is so easy. And I have had experiences in the past before I worked with you where it was much more formal, you know, you'd get a letter in the mail and it would outline, you know, 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. And in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, it took 30 minutes to write up this silly letter or this invoice and type it all up. Um, and so, uh, you know, I look for digital everything in service. I do not want to get a paper invoice. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone at this point should be sending paper invoices. It's a ridiculous <laughs> process. It's bad for the environment. It's it's a waste of time for the attorney. It's a waste of time for the client. So yeah, I, I'm happy to integrate technology into our practice. And and I, I'm glad that it works out for most people. Uh, and when it doesn't, you know, honestly, we just don't take the client because at this point, it just, our workflow is so dialed in and it makes us so much more efficient as a business that it's a disservice to the people who don't want to use it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, here we are beginning of 2021. It's a great time to examine your own business. If you're currently operating one, are you legally prepared? Are you organized? Are there some things that you should do uh, as far as registering your business name, getting a trademark? I think it's a great time of year to kind of look at those things. And, and if starting a business is on your to-do list this year, start looking at names, visit the USPTO, do a name search, you know, hire an attorney, like John said, to do an initial review and uh, get organized before you start that business. So I think with that, John, any last words for our audience? No, just take care, stay safe and have a great 2021. Awesome. Appreciate having you, John. Thanks again. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Go home, grab a beer, play the name game and start a business.